0: Last time we spoke about Wingate, the Chindits, and Operation Longcloth. The onion-eating madman Wingate certainly pushed his men to the limits as Operation Longcloth was in full swing. The Japanese had been alerted to the presence of the Chindits when they started blowing up railways and soon a game of cat and mouse was set loose. Some of the Chindit columns, especially those in the southern group, were absolutely battered and had to flee for their lives back to India. Meanwhile, Wingate and the main body were in a very sticky situation and probably should have turned back from the offset, but Wingate pushed on regardless. His rather reckless attitude led the men to be hunted down more fiercely until orders from India forced Wingate's hand to return home. In order to return home, Wingate would have to sacrifice some and push others to the absolute limit. But today, we are venturing back to the icy cold waters of the North Pacific. This episode is the Battle of Khamondorsky Islands. Welcome back to the Pacific War podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com and Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And perhaps if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing my multi-part series on China's warlord era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And a big thanks to all of you who have already signed up. Over there, you can find all the goodies, you know, early access to all of my content, Discord rights, because I do have a Discord server, polls to vote on the next subjects I cover, invites to live hangouts, and such. But most importantly, there is exclusive content in the form of podcasts. For this month of February, one patron asked that I do a piece covering a pretty interesting figure. That figure being General Kanji Ishiwara the man who set off the Mukden Incident. So if that's of interest to you, why don't you go check out the Patreon. It would mean a lot to me. Raid counter raid and constant battle against the brutal power of Mother Nature and her frigid northern climate occupied both the Japanese and the Americans in the Aleutians for much of 1942. Things did not really kick off much until the arrival of Rear Admiral Thomas C. Kincaid on January the 3rd of 1943. Kincaid quickly persuaded his chiefs to send both men and materials to Alaska to help expel the Japanese menace from their footholds on Kiska Attu. Thus a naval force led by Rear Admiral Charles McMorris was sent. McMorris led Task Force 8, which consisted of the heavy cruiser Indianapolis, light cruiser Richmond, and the destroyers Gillespie, Coughlin, Bancroft, and Cadwell. One of their early successes, as we saw last time, was the occupation of Amshitka. The race to take the island between the Japanese and the Americans was a bit of a nail-biter, but in the end it would fall securely into Allied hands and a new airstrip was quickly built. Kincaid and McMorris began a blockade of the enemy's approaches to Kiska and Attu, trying to squeeze them out of the region. Submarine Reconnaissance gave a report on February 18th claiming to have spotted several enemy warships harbored at Attu's Holtz Bay. McMorris decided to carry out an attack against Attu as a result. The submarine report, however, also made its way to Adak, and the report prompted General Butler to order a bomber strike against Holtz Bay before McMorris could arrive to the scene. Unexpectedly, the Americans were met with clear weather for once, which allowed McMorris to make it over to Attu in great time. So both the naval and aerial forces reached their target around the same time. This also, however, was almost met with disaster, as a single B-17 flying around 10,000 feet mistook the American task force to be Japanese. The pilot attempted two bomb runs, but luck would have it, the bombs failed to release because of mechanical malfunctions. Meanwhile, some anti-aircraft fire from the Americans forced the B-17 to hightail it out of there. And so Mick Moore set to work ordering his task force to shell Chickaguff Village and Holtz Bay. They fired their salvos using a checkerboard pattern, firing for two hours while some of his ships paraded back and forth. The bombardment managed to kill 23 Japanese, wounded one, and demolished a building, but was not overly successful at neutralizing the airfields. After the bombardment, McMorris took the Indianapolis and destroyers Gillespie and Coglan westward to try and bolster the blockade. This also allowed him to tease Japanese home waters a bit and potentially intercept some outbound convoys. The Japanese had actually launched a convoy back on February the thirteenth. The convoy was transporting an infantry platoon, airfield construction materials, and munitions, all escorted by the light cruisers Kiso and the destroyers Hatsushimo and Wakaba. Until this point, the Allies had never ventured to these waters, and when they did, the Japanese were caught off guard and dispersed quickly, leaving the 3,100 ton Akagane Maru vulnerable. She was caught, fired upon, and sunk while the other IJN vessels made their way back to Paramashiro, not wanting to get caught up in the enemy's activity. The fact the Allies were now prowling out in these waters indicated to the Japanese they were blockading Kiska and Attu. This left General Higuchi in quite a predicament. He had two options laid bare to him. One, to simply withdraw from the Aleutians, or two, to continue reinforcing Attu and Kiska. The later option, of course, would require more resources from the IGN perhaps even sending naval assets to hit allied strongholds like Adak or the newly acquired Emchitka base. General Iguchi made a request for the later choice, and this was vetoed down by Admiral Boshiro Hosogaya. As I've mentioned in some previous episodes, the IGN held a very aggressive doctrine, and thus most of the actions for the navy were directed at hitting enemy warships. What I mean by this, take for example with the IGN submarine fleet, was that they viewed merchant raiding as dishonorable, and instead favored using such assets in fleet engagements. It honestly goes far to unnoticed that during the Pacific War, the other key actors, such as Nazi Germany, Britain, and America, while well, they employed considerable assets to hit their enemies' merchant fleets. The Nazis devastated Britain with their U-boats, trying to strangle the island nation, similarly to what Germany did in World War I. Likewise, the US employed its submarines in the Pacific almost exclusively against Japanese merchant shipping lines, and it was one of the major reasons for their victory. The American effort to eventually strangle the Japanese home islands from their merchant fleet brought her literally to her knees, while the IGN submarine fleet only began significant efforts to do the same thing far too late into the war. On top of this, Partly as a result of not having a doctrine to attack enemy merchant fleets, the Aegean had basically no doctrine on how to defend her own merchant fleets. And this proved disastrous from the very early days of the war. Admiral Hosogaya had vetoed General Higuchi's call to perform some merchant attacks based on the grounds it was dishonorable. But when Higuchi requested then to simply abandon the Aleutians, he vetoed that as well. On the grounds it would leave the Kurils and the northern parts of Japan bare to attack. It is rather interesting, if you pull out a map, and look at the Aleutian island chain that extends over towards Japan, how likely this could have been an attack route. Though the weather conditions would have made it an absolute nightmare, a drive from the north could have had major potential. In the end, Higuji and his forces would be forced to make do, trying to build up their fortifications and airfields to combat the American campaigns to bomb the hell out of them. Higuchi did not have a ton at his disposal. He did have 8,000 troops on Kiska and around 1,000 on Natu, none of which were first-rate soldiers by the way, but it was to be expected given the nature of, well, where they were and their roles. They had around 60 trucks, 20 motorcycles, a few cars and some small tractors. Anti-aircraft guns were plentiful, but they had no artillery. And basically, no mechanized strength. And so they mined and barbed-wired their sparsely defended beaches, hoping the war over the skies would keep the Americans at bay. But after the loss of Guadalcanal, the Japanese could ill afford to spare much in terms of aircraft for the North Pacific. By early March, American bombing campaigns had crippled or sunk over 40 vessels and inflicted a total of 3,477 casualties. Yaguchi's men were running low on provisions, beginning to face the same fate as their comrades had once done on Guadalcanal, albeit a very different type of climate. A resupply convoy slipped past the American blockade on March the 9th, but it was to be the last. McMorris was stepping up the blockade game, finally forcing Admiral Hosogaya into a corner. Again, Hosogaya was facing the dilemma. Abandon the Aleutians or commit significant assets to break the blockade. Hosogaya planned a major resupply mission using two large transports filled to the brim and four destroyers likewise carrying loads. He planned to blast his way through the American blockade, personally taking command of the 5th Fleet, known as the Northern Force, which consisted of heavy cruisers Nachi and Maya, light cruisers Tama and Abukuma, and destroyers Wakaba, Hatsushimo, Ikazuchi, Anozuma, and Asugumo. Hosoga would be taking Nachi as his flagship for the operation set to depart on march the twenty second. In keeping with the IJN's tradition of overly complicating operations, three groups of ships would converge on a rendezvous point sixty miles south of the Soviet owned Komandorsky Islands. By the way, I'd like to take a little sidestep here. For those of you who, uh, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but I I write these scripts, of course, in advance, and I do read them out, but I do love to, you know, just add things in here and there, and I want to add something about the Soviets and all this, because it's kind of funny. A lot of people don't know this, or they get confused by this. Japan and the Soviet Union have a neutrality pact for almost 90% of the Pacific War. Now, when you pull out a map, you'll notice that the Soviet Union has a cold water port known as Vladivostok. Vladivostok is extremely close to Japan, and it's pretty much isolated. Yet, Allied convoys would bring supplies over to the Soviet Union to Vladivostok unmolested. How did they do this? They simply raised the USSR flag, and Japan couldn't do a damn thing about it. The Japanese, of course, knew most of these ships were, you know, Canadian, American, etc. But they were not willing to ever risk the chance the USSR would be given a free hand to just run right through Manchuria. It is almost laughable whenever you research the supply routes used for the Lend-Lease actions, for example. If you look at a map, you will see a ton of materials went over through Vladivostok. On top of this, the Soviet ships would also venture into Japanese waters all the time to spy on them to feed information over to the Americans. The only reason I point all this out is when you have anything Soviet-owned, even these small, kind of insignificant Komodorsky Islands, the Japanese would have to be on their toes whenever performing actions near them. And back to our story. Meanwhile, Admiral Kincaid, had made some reforms to Task Force 8, forming it into a new Task Force, 16, consisting of heavy cruisers Salt Lake City, light cruiser Richmond, and destroyers Bailey, Coglin, Dale, and Mahagan. The Indianapolis had been switched out for the older Salt Lake City, which recently had been repaired after being damaged at the Battle of Cape Esperance. The same day Hoseaga's 5th Fleet departed, so did McMorris's from Dutch Harbor, heading to the west to enforce their blockade efforts. What is a bit interesting for this event, while dozens of carriers were being constructed, literally a hundred would be afloat by the end of the war, the war in the Aleutians would see no more of these. In the remote, fog-bound, and storm-lashed waters of the north, neither the Japanese nor Americans would field any carriers, after Yamamoto had withdrawn his during the Midway Catastrophe. The battle for control over the Aleutian Sea would be quite the traditional one. Small task forces meeting and engaging another in furious exchanges of cannon fire at line of sight ranges. For my world of warship fellow players, it is a game without those pesky CVs. Side note, I play CV. Don't hate me for it. Hosoka sailed his Fifth Fleet Northern Force to meet the transports supply ships, and escorts to shepherd them the rest of the way to Atu. His convoy sailed in two separate sections. The second escort force consisted of Usugumo and Transport Sankomaru, and Convoy D led by Rear Admiral Mori Tamiyochi, comprising of Abukuma, Ikazuchi, Inazuma, and the transports Sakitamaru and Asakamaru. The second escort force left Katsyoka Naval Base on the 22nd, while Convoy D departed on the 23rd. Also, Gaya sailed south over the grey northern seas as the convoys went north. The Japanese did not realize it, but Joseph Rochefort and his fellow cryptanalysts at Station Hypo were continuing to break Japanese naval codes, providing invaluable information on IGN movements. The Americans knew of the convoy sailing for Attu, and Kincaid was planning to intercept it the entire time. Now, the IGN warships outmatched the Americans in terms of firepower, both in gun and significantly more so in torpedoes. The Type 93 Long Lance Oxygen Torpedo boasted a 25-mile range against the abysmal American Mark 15s, which held about a 7.4-mile range. When they actually worked, that is. The Long Lances also held a 1,080-pound warhead compared to the Mark 15's 827-pound warhead. Regardless, the Americans had the distinct advantage of intelligence, and the sailors were in high spirits despite knowing how outgunned they truly were. Joseph Gandalaria, a water tender aboard the Monaghan, said prior to the battle, I remember going up on the deck and across it going down to the fire room. We was going to attack some transports, going to be all over in a few minutes, like duck soup. As the two fleets were edging closer to another in the northern sea, a terrible storm broke out. The battering winds and huge swells made the destroyers heave and thrash terribly, and soon the light and heavy cruisers began to experience some minor damage. Hosagaya's force remained ignorant of the American threat stalking them through the inhospitable weather. The weather issue caused problems for the Japanese at the rendezvous point as well. They were forced to cut speed in half on March the 24th due to the violent weather, and Hosogaya was only able to link up with Convoy D by 4 p.m. on March the 25th. The two other ships of the second escort force remained missing. Thus, Hosogaya's vessels began patrolling in a 60-mile line while awaiting their comrades. In the meantime, the Americans had their own problems. The sea had grown so violent, the crews feared sinking. George O'Connell aboard the Salt Lake City recalled this. The Salt Lake City would literally dive into the base of the next wave. Tons of water would come crashing down onto the forecastle, sweeping over turrets 1 and 2, and the open bridge. Shortly after our turn into the sea, and after only a few moments of that dangerous agony, Commander Bitler came to the bridge, Visibly disturbed, he said the ship patently could not take the punishment. By the early morning of March the 26th, the storm finally died down, making it safer for both sides. Damage to the American ships saw some smashed hull plates, bent stations, flooded storerooms, but nothing too major. The next morning saw the furious ocean calmed to a near smoothness with almost no swell. Thick, gray, gloomy clouds hung over the expanse. McMorris had received a number of reports from the PBYs stating that they had seen the enemy ships appearing and disappearing over in the west. McMorris was certain this had to be the large convoy, and he was anxious to intercept it, under the belief they would only have a few destroyers as an escort. The leading destroyer, Coglin, made a radar contact showing several unidentified ships around 10 miles to the north. McMorris took his force, then swung out in a one-mile interval to close in around his flagship, the Richmond, and began sailing towards the northeast to intercept the enemy. The mood amongst the Americans was exorbitant. They believed the radar blips indicated a helpless line of transports with perhaps a destroyer or two in attendance, nothing to match their six-vessel group. As one officer aboard the Salt Lake City, Lt. Howard Grant, put it, Fox in the henhouse. The chickens had all turned to wolves, and the door was locked. As the forces came closer together, Japanese lookouts saw the Coglin and Richmond, and initially thought it was the second escort force, but quickly surmised their identity. Osogai ordered a message to be sent via signal lamp, and this confirmed, to the Americans, to their absolute horror, they were not facing a helpless convoy, but rather, two heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and four destroyers. McMorris had orders to avoid superior forces and could have dashed for safety, but with the Japanese force so close, chances of that were quite slim. It was likely the Japanese would overtake them all and sink them regardless. Thus he decided to engage the enemy. Hosogai upon realizing what he was facing motioned the transports further back and got his warships between the foxes and the chickens. McMorris sent word to Kincaid, asking for air support. The two fleets set up into a collision course with the Japanese destroyers swinging to bear down on the port of Richmond. McMorris planned to draw the enemy cruisers away with a feint, and then dash in behind them to attack the cargo ships. The Japanese cruisers were the first to fire with Nachi in the lead. At 8.40, cruiser Maya opened fire at 20,000 yards upon Richmond, which swung into a westward turn. Nachi suddenly received some electrical problems, cutting power to her turrets for several minutes. As the range closed in more between the forces, the American ships began to open fire while the Japanese shifted their attention for Richmond to the larger and more threatening-looking South Lake City. The Tama continued to fire upon the Richmond scoring no hits, causing the surface around the American vessel to erupt in a fountain of spray. Hosogai ordered his destroyers to make torpedo runs, but none of them obeyed this order. Various captains would later make excuses such as not receiving the signal or being unable to reach the correct speed for proper maneuvers. But this was certainly a sharp contrast from the IJN destroyers whose commanders and crews were famous for aggression. Meanwhile, the American ships began chasing salvos to avoid taking hits, altering their course towards the last splash in order to foil the enemy gunners. The IGN cruisers began launching their torpedoes, but all missed with one churning past dangerously close to Richmond's bow. The American guns put Nachi's main battery out of action, forcing Hosogaya to change his course to get even closer to bring his other batteries into play. In response, McMorris made a 40-degree turn to port to confuse the enemy's gunner. Captain Bertram Rogers, soaked to the skin in ice-cold water, made fast guesswork as to where the next enemy salvos were aimed and expertly headed towards the point the last salvo had hit, assuming the enemy spotters would correct their aim each time. In this manner, Rogers chased salvos with great skill exclaiming, "Fool them again! At 10 AM, with almost no actual hits being achieved, Salt Lake City landed three hits on Nachi, damaging her rudder and jamming her into starboard position. Her crew managed to free the rudder, but it began functioning erratically. Noting the ship's loss of maneuverability and within 20 yards, the crews all shifted their fire onto the Salt Lake City. Hits were made from Richmond and Coughlin, upon Nachi causing a lot of smoke. McMorris then decided to disengage, turning his force westward. Upon seeing the Americans trying to flee, Hosogaya ordered Tama to cut across their arc and deployed Nachi, Maya, Hatsushimo, and Wakaba to cut off the Americans' escape route. Task Force 16 was forced to flee for their lives going west and northwest. During the chase, both sides began frantically calling for aerial support, but both were informed none were coming to help them. The Maya and Salt Lake City were the only ships dueling during this interval, and Maya managed to hit Salt Lake City amid ship, damaging her catapult, taking out also the float plane, and then she hit her on the quarter deck. Salt Lake City's own gunfire managed to damage her hydraulic steering system, making her maneuvers more difficult. Over 200 shells fell around her until a dud hit and caused flooding to an engine room, forcing her to slow down. In response to this, Mick Morris ordered Coglin and Bailey to drop back to the rear of line to generate a smokescreen. Hosogaya had the initiative now. The enemy was fleeing, and they were far from Alaska. In fact, they had managed to get themselves much closer to the Kurils. The American crews believed their only chance of survival lay in probably getting interned by the Russians, but Hosogaya squandered that chance by speeding up and blocking them. The Japanese were closing in, and believing they were close to point-blank range, McMorris decided to make a wide turn south, covered again by his destroyer's smoke screen. The Japanese launched 16 torpedoes all at the same time, but missed with all of them. At 10.59am, the Natchez finally ranged in on the Salt Lake City, despite the smoke screen cover, and landed a shell, killing two men, one of which was Captain Rogers, 2nd in command, Lieutenant Commander Windsor Gale. Then an 8-inch shell from Nachi hit her below the waterline at 11.03 AM, destroying two fuel tanks, damaging propeller shafts, and starting floods into her engine room. Soon Salt Lake City was dead in the water as the Japanese concentrated their fire upon her. Her engineers struggled to restart her boilers and offset the flooding as McMorris ordered his destroyers to perform basically a suicidal torpedo run at the enemy in the hopes of saving Salt Lake City. So she could repair herself the four u.s destroyers began surging at the enemy as the salt lake city continued firing her guns back at the Natchi. the salt lake city landed some hits on Natchi, killing several men admiral hosogai himself was saved by a hair's breadth as a shell had gone through the bridge killing three officers standing right next to him by the time salt lake city had exhausted eighty percent of her armor-piercing rounds One Lt. Benjamin Johnston made an amazing hit, largely by accident, as he recalled. I guess I probably would have asked permission to throw rocks had the Japs been close enough. In order to conserve armor-piercing ammo, I shifted to high capacities, with the hope that one shell at a time might just possibly cause the Japs to think a plane or two from Achitka was dropping a few bombs. The high capacities, not having shell die, just might appear similar to bombs exploding on the water. They did, and the Japs fired off bursts into the overcast. After seeing the blue shell die of the American armor-piercing shots for hours, the Japanese believed Johnson's random high-explosive shell was actually from an aircraft, as the Nachi Amaya began to fire wildly into the sky with their anti-aircraft guns. So again, for my World of Warship players. The guy just randomly shot a high-explosive shell after shooting armor-piercing for a long time. And this literally made all the Japanese believe, Oh my god, there are air supports here. We better shoot into the sky wildly. Pretty crazy. Meanwhile, the American destroyers continued their charge forward with Bailey in the lead. At just 10,000 yards, the Japanese concentrated their fire upon Bailey, and a shell went right through her, killing five men. Captain Ralph Riggs of the Bailey ordered her to fire torpedoes at the extreme range of 9,500 yards, and just after the first fish had launched into the water, suddenly the Japanese ships began steaming away. Hosogaya had ordered his fleet to retreat. Hosogaya had broken off the battle for a variety of reasons. His warships were dangerously low on ammunition, and sailing back and forth in search of the second escort force had used up most of their fuel. The smoke screens had masked the state of the Salt Lake City. Hosogaya believed she was still combat-ready during the battle. Also, the Admiral had received reports about the Americans calling in for air support, and alongside the odd high-explosive shell incident, he believed there might be American aircraft in the vicinity. There is also another factor no Japanese Admiral would ever admit to, fearing shame brought upon him. The man had seen three officers blown into chunks of flesh a few feet beside him, and perhaps this shot his nerves a bit. Hosogai's sudden departure was a miracle for the men aboard Salt Lake City. Admiral Kincaid, after investigating her damage, declared, The Japanese could have sunk Salt Lake City with a baseball. Likewise, Ensign F. R. Floyd, wrote this on the ship's log shortly after the battle had ended. This day, in the hand of divine providence lay over the ship. Never before in her colorful history has death been so close for so long a time. The entire crew offered its thanks to Almighty God for His mercy and protection. They should be thanking the random high-explosive shell fired by that one guy because ultimately it seems that is why the Japanese fled the scene. It is absolute insanity to believe the Japanese lost a chance of a major naval victory because they thought possibly some aircraft were coming in. Now as indecisive as the battle was, it did cause major changes. Admiral Hosogaya lost his command when the IGN staff's analysis recognized correctly that more aggression would have resulted in the Salt Lake City and perhaps even more ships being sunk. In all, 7 Americans and 14 Japanese were killed, with 20 Americans and 26 Japanese wounded. But no ship sunk. Most importantly, the battle caused the Japanese to abandon efforts to resupply and reinforce Atu and Kiska. Now the IGN would rely on submarines to carry out the task which could only manage so much as we've seen in the South Pacific. The battle for the Kamdorsky Islands resulted in a tactical draw, but a strategic victory for America. It was also the last real slugout, gunnery duel ever to take place between opposing surface fleets without the use of combat airplanes. Basically, it was the last of the good old-fashioned naval battles. Again, those of you who play World of Warships would probably say something like, Get rid of the CVs. Mick Morris received praise from Admiral Nimitz and Kincaid for his unlikely victory. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up my multi-part series on China's warlord era. And just a friendly reminder, if you want to hear more exclusive content like... The story of General Kanji Ishiwara, and how he began the Mukden Incident, why don't you check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. It would mean a lot to me. The ice-cold water in the North Pacific saw a good old-fashioned naval brawl, the likes of which would not be seen again. It was a strategic victory for America, and one that would advance her recapture of the Aleutian Islands.